today we are entering into Mark uh, chapter two. So just kind of a couple words as way of introduction. One is if you have not picked up uh, one of the scripture notebooks, feel free to do so. There's some up here on the altars. Uh, if you um, remember, there's a little bookmark in there so you can keep up with what passage we are on. Uh, as we come into chapter two, um, kind of a couple things that are going on that I just want to remind you of as we, we kind of get into this chapter. One of those is, is we have jumped over some important things that have happened at the end of chapter two, and so, or at the end of chapter one. Last week, we ended with Jesus calling of some of the, the calling of the beginning of his disciples, uh, James and John, Simon uh, and Andrew, and then we jump all the way into chapter two, and we miss some important things, and kind of to give you a little bit of context, we miss some healings that have taken place. One of the things I would recommend, if you, if you have your little scripture notebooks, uh, one of the things that I really enjoy about Mark, there are a lot of healings that we will see in the first half of Mark. In the second half, there are not very many healings. And one of the things I did years ago was to go through and number those healings. And so that's a good kind of exercise. As you're reading, go through, just highlight them, put a little number next to them. If I didn't miss any as I was doing this on Friday, uh, we missed three healings in that first chapter. There is the uh, healing of a man with an unclean spirit, which is the first healing. And then there is a healing of Simon, uh, Simon Peter's mother uh, in the next little section, and then a man with leprosy. And so we have those three healings happen in chapter one. And so that's important because as we are going to hear here in just a moment, in chapter two, the people have heard what's going on. The people have heard that there are healings that are taking place. And so there's some excitement going on about that. I also mentioned, if you weren't with us last week, uh, there was a man, Max McLean, who uh, you can find it on YouTube. He acts out the entire Gospel of Mark. I thought we would try it for a kind of January, see what y'all think. And so we're going to watch here in just a second his interpretation or his reading of chapter two, verses one down through 20. He's gonna cover more than what we're gonna to cover today, but I want you to hear the full passage and its context. So we're gonna watch that and then we'll jump into the story. So we're gonna to focus today on the beginning story, the first story we heard of the men uh, bringing their friend to Jesus uh, as there was a crowd. And so we're going to be there in Mark chapter 2. If you want to turn uh, your Bibles, we're going to look at a few of these verses. But let me give you a little bit of the setting of kind of how this uh, might have taken place or how it did take place. Archaeologists uh, believe that they're in Capernaum, uh, that they have found the house where this took place. Even if they have not found the house, it doesn't really matter. But if they haven't found it, uh, the houses there in Capernaum are very similar. And so they know the structure and the the layout of these homes. These homes were one story, and uh, they were one story built uh, with primarily mud and thatch as they built up the walls. But this particular house that they have found, that they think this is the one, in this house was a room of about 20 by 25, so 20 feet by 25 feet. But the thing that I think really helps us is in that room was just, it was a large opening. There would have been the kitchen would have been in that room. But also in that room, there was not a door as we think about a door. Rather, there was an opening on the front of the house that measured about 16 feet across. So 25 by 20, and one of those walls was open by 16 feet. And why is this important? 
I think part of this, and what I want you to kind of get into your head is, in my, when I've read this story, I kind of think about a three-foot door, and there's only so many people at a three-foot door that can listen through, right? You get about three or four layers of people back, and you don't hear what's going on in the room. And I would think if these men were carrying a paralyzed man, their friend, they could have said to those two or three rows of people, could you please move? Could you please move? But if the opening was 16 feet across, we can only imagine the layers of people that could still hear Jesus teaching. And so they come up to this house and they have to make a decision. They are there with their friend and they carry him into uh, or to the house. And so they would go up somewhere on the side, come up to the house. The roof would have been a thatched roof with branches and then mud to try to hold it all together. And they take this and they begin to open the roof. They begin to open up the roof, and as they open up the roof, we see there in verse 4, we're going to look at just verses 4, 5, and 6, we see there in these verses, I think I have verses, do I have that scout? Verses 4, 5, and or yeah, 2, 4, 5, and 6, or did I miss those? Oh, I missed them. All right, so we're just going to read them. All right, that's fine. That's why we have our Bibles. So many people gathered together, and there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. Sorry, I started with verse 2, and I said 4, didn't I? Let's jump down to 4. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to come back to verse 5, but before we come back to verse 5, I want to deal first with verse 6. So let's look at verse 6. Verse 6 says to us, But some of the scribes, which I think he did such a good job kind of encapsulating them, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak with it like this? He's blaspheming. Now, let's talk just for a moment about blasphemy, because it's a word that sometimes gets thrown around, and sometimes you'll see it on the internet. So let's talk about the word blasphemy. What does the word blasphemy mean? Well, blasphemy, pretty, uh, pretty much we can kind of define it in two ways. The first part is, is that blasphemy is to say something untrue about God. To say something untrue about God. The other part that you need to know is, is that this understanding and that blasphemy is rooted in the first three commandments. Y'all remember the first three of the Ten Commandments? Do not have other gods beside me, Exodus 20 tells us. Commandment number two, do not make an idol for yourselves or of those of us that grew up memorizing King James. Do not make for yourself a graven image. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens or above the earth or below or the waters or the sea of the earth. Do not bow to worship them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then the third one, the third commandment, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not let anyone unpun- will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. So the word blasphemy is rooted in these three commandments. Do not know other gods before me, do not make an idol for yourself, and do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And so our first one is, is to say something untrue about God. And the second one pulls these together and is to claim 
that another God, little g, is God. This is, this is basically what blasphemy is. To say something untrue about God and to claim something is God that is not God. So the question is, was Jesus blaspheming that day? And the answer kind of relies on who you think Jesus is. Because if you are a scribe, the first thing you know is, is that a scribe who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah would say, absolutely, this was blasphemy. Jesus was asserting that he is God. Jesus was doing things that were reserved for God alone. So as the scribes, they were absolutely correct from their position. This was blasphemy. Now from our position, he was asserting that he was God. Why? Because he was God. He was doing the things reserved for God. Why? Because he was and is God. And I, bring, I kind of bring this all to you because there's something that I want you to see in this passage that is so important that we miss so many times. Last week, we talked about the word that we translate as gospel or good news, euangelion. I told you by the time we're done with Mark, everybody needs to know what the word euangelion means. We talked about what that word means. Gospel, good news. This week, we're going to kind of take that a little bit deeper and talk about the Christian witness. This little story encapsulates for us what it means to be a Christian witness. This week on Thursday, Scout went with me. We went over to Atlanta. My cousin Jimmy uh, had passed away before Christmas. Uh, he had a rare form of melanoma and had fought it for seven years. And by the beginning of December, uh, had the, the cancer had gone so far into his brain, uh, his wife told me he didn't even know who she was. And he passed away just before Christmas, and so we went to the service. They are Episcopalian, and this was Scout's first uh, Episcopalian funeral service. And uh, it, it was a different experience for her. She'll be happy to tell you all about it. But it was very long. It actually got to the point we were there for about an hour and 20 minutes. We had the, you know, where you... Uh, greet one another in the name of the Lord, and we stand up, and Scout starts packing her stuff up, and I leaned over, and I said, honey, we're not done. We haven't even taken communion yet. This is just a little break. This is the intermission. We got more to do. He was rather disappointed, but I tell you all that to say there, there are kind of two things that happened in this service that, that I, I want to use as an example. The first one, in this small little church in Snellville, Georgia, this little Episcopalian church, on the altar, they had the altar up, up here, the communion table would have been up here on the platform, and there was a stand on it. And on that stand was a red book, and that red book had four symbols on the front of it. And every time anybody walked past the front of that book, you know what they did? They stopped, and they kneeled, and they'd move on. When my cousin's wife, Melissa, came up, she, uh, Jimmy had been uh, cremated and they had a little stand for her. She walked up, she knelt, she put it on the little stand, she came back to the middle, she knelt and would sit down. 
Do you know what that little book was? The Gospels. The four Gospels were in that little book. Now, for some of us, it makes us a little nervous because I just read the Ten Commandments. And it talked about honoring and it talked about bowing to things. But I sat there and I thought that as we've talked about this word euangelion, what it means to submit our lives to the gospel. What it means that every time we see God working in the gospels, that we have to stop bow. To know that there is something greater than you and I. That was the first thing I took away. The second thing I took away was that my cousin's daughter, Kinsey, uh, my cousin Jimmy is quite a bit older than me, and so he and his brother Jack, I consider them uncles, and I consider their children my cousins, but it's, that's not technically how it is. So Kinsey, uh, who's 33 years old, I'm sure she'd be happy to be telling you how old she is, uh, but she's closer to, to my generation. Uh, Kinsey got up and she did what we do at a lot of funerals, but she told the stories of her dad. And what she did was, was she bared witness or bore witness to who her dad was. And she told funny stories and she told moving stories, but she was there to bear witness to who Jimmy McMurtry was. And that made me think of what does it mean for us to bear witness to who Christ is? And so this morning, that's kind of where, where I want to take you for the bulk of the sermon uh, is to talk through what does it mean for us to bear witness to who God is incarnate in his son, Jesus the Christ? So we do this by answering three questions, and these questions are answered for us, uh, for the most part, in this passage. So the first question is, who is Jesus? Well, the passage tells us Jesus is the Son of Man. This term might be a little foreign to us, but this term actually comes from the book of Daniel. Y'all, most of you will remember the story of Daniel in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But in, Daniel's, in the book of Daniel, there's a little section that is classified as apocalyptic literature. Literature about the end times. And in this story, Daniel tells us what he sees. And so if, you, if you've got your, your full Bible with you, not just the scripture notebook, you can turn to Daniel chapter 7. I want you to hear these words because this is where we begin to get this idea of who is the Son of Man. So our question is, who is Jesus? Jesus tells us, I'm the Son of Man. So then the question to us is, well, who is the Son of Man? And Daniel answers this for us. And he says... I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like, what? A son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those, so, sorry, glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So who is Jesus? Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 14, verse 62. We're going to get there when we get to the end of the gospel. But he tells us there in Mark chapter 14, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man. 
seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the one with all power that every dominion has been given to, glory and a kingdom, and those that every people, nation, and language would serve him. That is who Jesus is. He is the Son of Man. He is the embodiment of God's people and the embodiment of humanity in one person. And he is one to be praised. He is one to bow to. So our second question, what does Jesus bring? Well, I could answer this and we could talk a lot about this question. And I'm not going to take all day to do this because I'm just going to stick to Mark. I know we just went to Daniel, but I'm going to stick to what's going on in Mark. What does Jesus bring? We're going to go back to it, but if you remember in the story, the ceiling is opened up, the man is put before him, and what does Jesus say to him? Your what? Sins are forgiven. What does Jesus bring? Well, according to this text, what Jesus brings is forgiveness. Now, the problem with this is, is forgiveness is an act of God. And it is only an act of God. Only God can forgive. But there's another thing going on here. Not only can only God forgive, but forgiveness is something that happens up in heaven. Not here. Jesus is doing something that is reserved for the heavenly places, not something here on earth. So already in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, we already read this, which is going to make the scribes very, very upset. They thought they were upset before. But look at what Mark, or look what Mark tells us Jesus says at verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority where? On earth. That the Son of Man has the authority to bring the things that are reserved only for heaven to bring them here. Things like forgiveness. Only the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic. Question three. What does the fullness of his reign bring? Well, the fullness of his reign, as we have already read in Daniel, and I've already repeated to you once, but that he has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that that dominion is not something that is temporary, but that dominion is something that is eternal, that will not pass away, that when everything else is destroyed, there is one thing that will remain, the kingdom of God. And if Jesus has all of that power, what does he choose to do with it? To forgive. He chooses to give his life to us as an act of forgiveness. He chooses to give us his life to restore a relationship between us and his Father. Of all the power that he has, he chooses to give himself to you and to me as an act of forgiveness and as an act of love. So let's go back. Let's go back to that room 
The ceiling is opened, and the four men lower their friend down. Let's look at verse 5. They lower their friend down, and so I just I want you to kind of see this scene. Don't miss kind of what's happening. So let's just kind of pretend. Here's the men. They're looking down into this hole that they have just created. They lowered their friend. I don't know if you've ever had to carry a dead body. I have not, or a, or a limp body. Uh, the ones that I've carried or I had to move, they're very, very heavy. If you have carried a dead body, please come talk to me because we need to talk about that. But there they are looking down into this hole, right? They're looking down. And Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I was on the roof, this is what I would do. Hey, Jesus. We just carried him all the way around here. We just dug a hole in, your, or in the ceiling. We just lowered him down. I don't know if you know this. He can't walk. I don't think I've told you all this story, but when I was at Nashville first, um, I was there from like, oh, when I was there on staff, it was like, oh, one to oh, three. So I was just a baby. I was in my 20s. And there, we, it was very old school. So on the platform, the pastor sat on the platform every Sunday morning. So there were four chairs on the platform. Pastor Henneke, Brian Starner, who was a music minister. And then the two outside chairs were reserved for staff members. And we rotated who, who got to sit on the platform or who had to, depending on the mood. But if you were on one of the end chairs, when Pastor Henneke came up to pray the pastoral prayer, he would say to the congregation every single week, as we go to prayer, the altars on each, at, the end, at the end of each altar are reserved for healing. If you would like to be anointed for healing, please come down to one of these altars and one of our pastors will meet you there to pray. And the assignment was, as staff was, if you were one of these outside chairs, that was your job. You went to those altars. Now, this is a church at the time that was running about 1,200 people. I was the college pastor. I'm like 24, 25 years old. I'm just a baby. And I, and so one week I go down, I go down and I kneel at the altar and this couple comes and they come to the altar and I don't know who they are. And they come and they kneel and the woman kneels in the front and the husband is kind of behind her. And so I said, how could I pray for you this morning? And she said, for healing. Okay. For those of you that don't know, if a woman doesn't want to tell you what's going on, you don't ask. And so I got out the oil, I anointed her for healing, I prayed for her, and I'm sure in my 24, 25-year-old self, it was a beautiful prayer. It was probably incredibly clumsy and awkward, but I prayed for her. And then I finished the prayer, and you know what she said to me? We didn't come here for me, we came here for my husband. Now, what I wanted to say back was, well, then why didn't, when I ask you what to pray for, why don't you say your husband? But I didn't. I anointed him. I prayed for him. And for 20 years, I have felt this was a very awkward moment, and I have felt very bad about it for 20 years. Because I completely missed it. Apparently, I misread the whole situation. But this week, as I was reading this text, that, that was the story that kept coming back to me, that in this moment, you just kind of want to say to Jesus is, Hey, buddy, you misread the situation. You came here to pray for this man, 
and you came here, we brought him here because he can't walk, and the, you forgave his sins. You, you completely misread this situation. But I think Jesus would say to us something very profound and very important. Whatever the physical thing that we think is our problem, maybe there's another problem. For Jesus to say to us, I know what you think is so important is that this man can't walk, but let me tell you what's actually really, really important. That he's a sinner who needs to be forgiven. We can deal with the physical stuff later, that's, that's fine, but the physical stuff, it's just temporary. The spiritual stuff is eternal. And Jesus came not to just deal with the temporary, he came to deal with the eternal, and when he looked at this man, he saw an eternal need. Now, for some of us in this room today, that might be us. There, there are four kind of characters in this story. There's the character of the crowd who just wants to watch and kind of see what's going on. There are the scribes who are looking on, who are very uh, critical of what's happening. But the third one is the man whose friends brought him. The man who came because he had a need and that need was an obvious need to everyone. The man couldn't walk. But what God said was, I don't want to just meet that need I want to meet a need that is so much deeper. And this morning, for some of you, that might be you. That there's something that you need to be forgiven for, or there is something that you carry that only God knows about. That you say, you know what, this morning I need to come and I need to give that to God. I, I need to come and I need to say, God, I... Everybody else thinks this is my problem, but I can't walk. But God, you know there's so much more. That what I need more than anything else is to be forgiven. And today, I know it's gonna be a little awkward for a moment, but I've asked John to come out and go ahead and start playing because if that's you today, I'm not done preaching, I got just a little bit more, but if that's you, to just come and find a place to kneel. We're not gonna come and ask you, okay, so what's the thing you don't wanna tell anybody that only God knows? That's, that's not ours. But that you come and find a place and just say, God, here I am. I need your forgiveness, I need your life, I need your promise. I, I, I need you in a way that only you know about. And today, if that's you, I just invite you to come and just find a place to pray. Just you and God to be able to come and find that place. As we read this story, another piece of the story that we don't want to move past too quickly. As I said, there's four characters. There's the crowd, 
There's the scribes that are critical. There's the man who was the paralytic. But there's a fourth character, isn't there? You see, the thing that has just kind of captured me all week about this passage is that verse five says to us, the very first three words, seeing their faith. That the man's sins were forgiven by the son of man. That Jesus had the authority to do that, but Jesus doesn't look at the man and see the man's faith. Whose faith does he see? The four men on the roof. Now, some of you are saying, Pastor, I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. How in the world? Because we need to have faith for our sins to be forgiven. How is it their faith? And my answer to you is, I don't know. But that's what the story tells us. That there is something about our faith that has an influence on the people around us. And the fourth character in this story that I want you to think about this morning and I want you to pray about is some of you are called, are called to be that person that brings someone to the feet of Jesus. Some of you have people in your life who you might have to put on a sheet and drag them to the feet of Jesus, but that's where they should be. And sometimes that's hard, they get heavy. Sometimes it's a hard way to live. But Jesus says, I see your faith as well. Your faith that your friend can be healed, your faith that your friend's sins can be forgiven, your faith. And today, another way that I want to close is, the first one was for if you need to be that person that says, I need to be at the altar and I need to be at the feet of Jesus. But there's a second piece of this. For those of you that say, there's somebody in my life that I need to be bringing. There's somebody in my life who I have brought, but Lord, I need the strength to continue on. To be the person to bring them. To be the person to show them who God is to be the person to take them, to do the work, to carry them around the building, to dig the hole in the ceiling, to put them before you. And today, as we close, we're gonna sing. And as we sing, my prayer is that some of us might just need to find a place at the altar to say, Lord, give me the strength to bring that person. Give me the hope the belief that you can do something in their life. Lord, give me the patience because carrying them is hard. But Lord, I want them to know who you are. And today as we sing, I just invite you to come and find a place at an altar to come and to say, Lord, help me help them. It was their faith their faith that healed the man. Let us stand as we sing.